0: Hi, my name is Infinite, and for more than seven years, I've had the privilege of working as a community organizer on issues related to education equity. And while I've seen a lot of potential for transformation, we have a long way to go. Welcome to Back to Freedom Schools, ongoing conversations about education equity in the state of Vermont. There's nothing like a global pandemic to peel back some of the layers that cover up of racial and social inequities in our state and country. As our public schools face this dilemma head-on, the situation on the ground remains way more complicated than the policy and political debates about getting back to normal. Our friend Kathleen Kessen reminds us, it is human nature to want to get back to normal following a crisis of great magnitude, to restore a sense of stability. But what if So-called normal forms of social, economic, and ecological behaviors are themselves at the root of the crisis. Now that we are dominated by logistical and safety concerns, priorities have shifted away from addressing the inequities that existed in our public school system before COVID-19. In this program, Some of the topics we cover will fall under the broad umbrella of education equity, including areas like school finance and curriculum, with special attention being given to racial equity, literacy, and of course, decolonizing education systems. Thank you for listening.
1: Thanks for having me. My name is Mike McGrath. I work as the Assistant Executive Director at the Vermont Principals Association. I've been there for about a year. I live in the South Burlington, Burlington area, and I've been a high school guidance counselor in Franklin County, a middle school principal in Franklin County, and I was the high school principal in Montpelier uh, the previous four years.
0: Great, thank you for sharing that. We often hear about students in school who are, are graduating, graduating school, getting high school diplomas and have not really been able to learn, uh, to read or, or write well. In your experience, what what do you think is, is going on there?
1: Yeah, I think um, I'm not an expert. There are people who are and would probably have more insightful things to say, but from from my perspective, you know, uh, the. The children that are coming into the school um, that have been read to, that are getting read to, that are getting out of lots of support at home, you know, have a big advantage. Uh, we know that that's super important um, for literacy. And it's certainly not those children's fault if they don't have those things. And so that means being able to identify, um, you know, really early on. Um, and then helping with technical support for those students for early intervention. Um, because, again, this is just my opinion, I'm not an expert, but I think it starts to snowball. Um, so that, you know, if they miss something in kindergarten, they miss something in first grade, miss something in second grade. Well, suddenly, you know, you get to third, fourth grade and they're, you're starting to miss some big building blocks that make everything a lot harder. And then it just starts to be sort of cover up. um, And, you know, um, maybe it just never gets corrected um, in the way that would be a thorough correction. So that's what I think happens.
0: If you could, you know, if you had your way, if you could wave a magic wand, right? And this is back to the the literacy question. Uh, what, What would the, you know, teaching literacy look like
1: yeah, again, I, there's probably somebody that can answer that better than, than me. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think, I think it's probably a combination of technical skill and the idea that, you know, we're not going to have a couple of interventionists who understand how to teach literacy really well, but, you know, practically everyone in the school is going to have that skill set yeah. and sort of coaching up the whole system so to speak, so that we all understand how to teach um, literacy better. Um, And rather than, you know, sort of relying on one or two people an hour a week for a few kids. Um, And so, you know, in school jargon, we call that tier one, right? Like first, first instruction. And I think just getting technically better at that uh, is one piece of the puzzle, maybe a big piece. I think another piece is engagement and making sure that, you know, the texts um, are representative of the students and reflect their lives um, so that they are engaged. And a lot of times we'll sort of save, you know, those personalized projects or those personalized things, you know, for the upper grades in Vermont, Um, you know, so they get to the seventh, eighth grade and we say, you know, all right, you know, design your learning, and they have no practice with it. They have no idea how to do that. So, you know, I think that more personalization and and more uh, identity work for all all of our young people in in the early grades um, is possible, and I think that that might be part one of the pieces of the puzzle too. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, Mike, thank you for trying to take on that question, you know, even though that's not, you know, maybe not your, your expertise. And I'll tell you why I pivoted to that question. And I I, I did that because, um, you know, when you brought up restorative practices, um, what where that took me is, you know, having, you know, worked uh, around restorative practices for the past few years, I think I've sort of come to uh, the realization that Um, that the behavioral issues um, that we're trying to create restorative practices to address are symptomatic in a lot of cases of young people's inability to perform academically and in particular read. And so, you know, now that I've kind of had that awakening you know, when we, we, you know, when I hear conversations about restorative practices and behavioral issues, you know, I go to, yeah, but why, you know, why are kids acting out, right? Um, you know, we know the data, we know that um, you know, kids who are free and reduced lunch, kids with disabilities, Black and brown kids are are disciplined at, at higher rates, um, but why, right? Some of it, I think, is certainly, you know, bias, and I'm starting to get the sense that, and it's not just intuitive. Uh, you know, you look at the data and you see who's struggling um, around r- something as fundamental as reading and writing, and you know, lo and behold, that's <laughs> kind of where we are. So that was why I, 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 I pivoted in that direction. So I, I really appreciate you. You know, um, you working with me on that. I guess it makes sense to me. Yep. Yeah. That. I mean, does that? I mean, do you have a, any?
1: No, it, it absolutely makes sense. Um to me. And I've seen in my experience as a counselor and a middle school principal, high school principal, young people use rude or disengagement um, behavior as a cover-up for just um, struggling with, with their academics. And not feeling particularly engaged and, you know, I mean, it's just a, it's just a better option for them socially and uh, for their self-worth to be like, you know what, I'm (laughs) like, this class isn't going to go that well. Maybe I'll just get myself out of here. And uh, you can understand how that would happen. Definitely.
0: So, you know, in recent months, there's been a lot um, uh, spoken about, in terms of inequities uh, in education during the, you know, the school closure, we'd like to, I guess, back up a little bit and and talk a little bit about some of the pre-existing conditions before COVID nineteen um, and what ec- inequities you may have seen before the COVID.
1: Yeah, to my mind, the the pandemic um, sharpened inequities for some folks. Honestly, I was appreciative that that was in the dialogue. Like you said, like we've heard a lot of talk about that. I mean, it's possible that that wasn't in the dialogue um, during the the initial closure and the pandemic. So uh, I was happy to hear that in most leaders' vernacular and pretty front and center um, concern. You know, just a, a sort of simple example of an inequity that was there before and then one that came into sharp focus is food right so there's this like initial energy boost of energy like well we we have so many students that count on school to eat and if we go to a remote learning setting how will we feed these students and that was novel because it was a weekday and it meant sort of developing bus routes and drop-off centers and problem-solving that. And as far as I know, pretty much every district in the state really worked hard to make that happen. But it's not as if that didn't exist, um, you know, during holiday breaks or, you know, spring break or any of those other times, right? Like that that need for basic nourishment was something that was always there and just sort of came into sharp focus um, during the, the pandemic. And, you know, a lot of schools have backpack programs and, and send food home and, ha- and are feeding students all summer. So, you know, for those districts, it wasn't, wasn't a very new experience um, for, for working to just, uh, ensure that, that kids have enough to eat. But that's a, like a real tangible example of an inequity that was just sharpened. Um, and, you know, you could go down the line like another one that is just like, you know, real sort of clear is access to technology and access to broadband Internet. You know, during uh, when you're not doing distance ed, it, you know, it's like, well, maybe they have access at home. Maybe they don't. and We'll try to work around it, deal with it. And then when it's, everything's remote and somebody doesn't have uh, consistent or regular access to a device and the internet, it was very clear that that was a major problem, like right off the bat. I mean, really, what, what are you going to be able to do in a distance ed setting? And people tried. they tried really hard to, you know, drop off centers. You know, I, I know like of some districts that you know, had boxes outside the school. You know, drop stuff off, pick it up. I mean, people were trying, um, but that access to the internet became very evident. Um, and again, it's not as if that wasn't affecting those students before COVID. It just was. It was just sharpened and, and heightened. Another thing would be like uh, access to a caring adult. Uh, again, like during normal school hours in in time. Schools probably have a sense of that, of like how much support there is at home, if somebody's available, if someone can meet them after school, pick them up, you know, like is is someone, is a caring adult available to this young person with time and energy um, to to help them meet their needs? And, you know, the answer to that is no for a lot of young people, for whatever reason. And with the pandemic, that just, again, that, that became clearer and came into sharper focus of how important that is and how much, uh, what a difference it makes and what an inequity it is for some folks to have that and some not to. Another one, you know, while we're at it is language, Mm. right? And, you know, we, we have many languages that are spoken in Vermont as a primary language at home and the translation services, you know, that districts, uh, you know, in Chittenden County um, are more used to, um, but I think we had, you know, just a handful of translators working super hard to try to get the messages from the, from the governor and from the agency of education and, and everything coming from schools as like all these communications were coming out and there were really vital pieces of communication um, coming from the state level and you know, so I, that, that was another one where it's like, that is always there. And then again, it's just like sharpened.
0: Thank you for that, Mike. Is there anything, can you think of what schools could do better to address some, some of the inequities?
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it, it's sort of hard to know, you know where to begin, um, to, to, be, um, to be in a space that is actionable and, and um, practical. And so, you know, I think that the state recognizes the need for, for broadband internet. I've said, this is my personal opinion, that, you know, maybe we need to consider it outright um, for people to have access to, to broadband, that that might just be the world we're living in now. Um, and without it, um, it's just uh, not fair um, and, and not possible to sort of access everything that a, a person needs in, the, in a modern life. So, you know, thinking about that and, and having schools uh, push for that and support that from a statewide level, which we have and would continue to do. And then, and, you know, as far as food, you know, uh, thinking, you know, just being more conscious of that. And really, that's the overall advice that I have for schools is, you know, sometimes I even think about like doing like an audit, Right. Just like going through your handbook, going through all your policies, going through um, all of your systems and looking at it through an equity lens, looking at it, uh, thinking about, you know, bringing in uh, marginalized voices and, and marginalized community members and saying, you know, what what is missing here or what is there too much of or how can we do this differently to to shore up inequities and I mean, that probably touches just about every piece of uh, what we're doing and every piece of policy that we have.
0: This question comes up actually quite a bit. Why should our local state government or even private foundations invest in racial equity work in a state like Vermont that is almost the widest state in the country?
1: Yeah, you know, um, to me, that's all the more reason. We think not only for, uh, you know, the students and community members that are people of color and that um, really challenging experience of being in a place that is as white as Vermont is, um, having to you know, move through that space of microaggressions and and lack of understanding and lack of culture, lack of community, lack of access to things that people need. And recognizing that it builds empathy in your community. Um, And I think that's a skill that is important for every student and every educator to to constantly be working on building. And also just to to recognize that 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 oppression is... Part of our history, and, and it's part of um, white supremacy culture that we're all a part of. And the more that uh, young people in schools can recognize that, the more it can be undone. And in that undoing, uh, there's more equity and opportunity for everyone. Not to mention that it's just the right thing to do. Do you think that the uh, oppression
0: that low income uh, white households are living in? Um, do you think that, that folks who are living under those conditions may uh, be experiencing some resentment, you know, when we're, we're focusing on racial equity?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, you know, there's an article called uh, How to Explain White Privilege to a Broke White Person. Um, and it's, it's a good article, um, because a lot of times, you know, people are not experiencing a a life of luxury. And when you, when you suggest that they're living with privilege, that's, that's difficult to understand and difficult to get their heads around when they don't feel like anything in their life is easy. Um, and that they have to work very hard and that, you know, nothing's handed to them. And so, uh, that, that, you know, takes some un, undoing, it takes a little deeper understanding. And I think, again, that starts with empathy, to recognize that, you know, there are things in, in these people's lives that is not easy, that there are things that are set up to, to keep them from accessing uh, everything that they might need and, and the opportunities that everyone should be able to have access to. And recognizing that that is a, a challenging experience and then also you know, recognizing that you know, privilege comes in many forms. And it may come in language. It may come in citizenship. It may come um, in height, strength. It might come in a physical ability, um, intellectual ability. And one of the, one of the privileges um, is, is being white in America. And that's not to say that they have all of those other privileges um, or that life isn't hard. But helping them recognize that an experience for a white um, a white American in Vermont is not the same as a Black American in Vermont uh, or a person of color in Vermont, and I think that you know it takes it takes a moment, it takes some listening to one another, it takes some uh, a little deeper dialogue to get there. Um, but I think that's something that people can understand, and I've experienced that with with young folks um, that start off in that place of saying what are you talking about? Like, my life is not easy. How can you say that I have privilege? And then, you know, the, the more you can sort of peel back the, the layers of the onion, they can understand what we're really talking about.
0: What action do you think uh, could be taken or structures created to, to radically reconstruct uh, public, he- public education in terms of safety?
1: Tell me more of what you have in mind.
0: Well, I think when we, we generally, when we talk about safety, the, you know, the, there's a large conversation around school resource officers. And mm-hmm. so I, I guess I just wonder is, um, is that our, uh, you know, is, is, is that w- what we're left with, um, in, mm-hmm. in order for us to, um, for our kids and teachers and, and, and administration to feel safe in schools?
1: I see what you mean. Yes. Um, it's a great question. I believe that a large part of feeling safe is feeling uh, trust. And I think one of the reveals um, from COVID-19 is that relationships just aren't important in schools. They're fundamental. Like everything is built on that. And schools with strong relationships with their, among one another uh, as adults and in the community and with students, uh, you know have been able to mitigate uh the challenges of the pandemic better than schools uh without it, and you know people used to say i you know I was a school administrator that um didn't didn 't raise my voice much, you know maybe a few times I made a mistake or there was a kind of emergency situation like you know don 't run out in the road or something might raise my voice um but, uh, you know, I think that there sometimes was a, a longing for kind of like a more authority from, from adults. And I, I just don't, I think that that time is past and it's about earning the respect of young people. It's about earning the respect of the community um, rather than sort of like demanding it. Because even if you do, um, it's probably not gonna work. <laughs> like you know, um, and I think that that's part that's part of uh, part of what it has been sort of laid bare as well, um, because you know now kids can just turn off their computer. They can just not check in. They can just not come to you know. I mean, it's there's no um, physical coercion over the over the, the bodies, right? Like you will go to classes. You must you know. We never really had that, but there was maybe more of a sense of that in the building than out of the building. And so it changes that um, dynamic of power. I think that, I think when we think about safety, um, it, for me, it's about relationships and it's about trust. And for me, that includes school resource officers. Um, I had a really good connection with a school resource officer in, in our building in Montpelier. And... They were incredibly supportive of us when we were the first, when our students led the, to be the first high school in the nation, as far as we know, to raise a Black Lives Matter flag. And there were some people that wanted to hurt us and, or at least threatened to hurt us. Our local police protected us. And they, they uh, were there when the flag was raised and the state police were there. Now, am I saying that it's always that way? No, it's not. But can, can it be that way? Uh, I think it can. Um, and that's about relationships. It's about trust and, and knowing what people's roles are and, and what they aren't. So I think that, I guess that's kind of the root of it for me when I think about safety. And, you know, if, if, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to say a little something else about it.
0: Yep. Go for it.
1: So, you know, one of the scary things for every modern school experience is school shootings. And that is, that is, is a, a terrifying thing. And it's a reasonably terrifying thing in, to my mind. And so schools have taken uh, sort of all the steps that they can to protect themselves. Um, it makes sense, right? And usually part of the plan is to you know have good counseling services and make sure we're connected to every student and make sure that you know we're part of the community. And I would just like uh, highlight that that the idea that we're going to sort of you know push out people that are dangerous and keep everybody else safe. I think um, in a small community in a small state is not practical. That those people are going to continue to be a part of our community and. You know how can we build build community that is is honest and, and builds trust um, and you know restorative practices, while not perfect or you know something that's gonna like just fix everything, I think are a part of that for schools and we've seen more and more schools work at getting better at restorative practices.
0: There's always been controversial as far as I so as, as I can remember around you know standardized testing, you know. And so knowing that we can't, you know, just rely on, you know, uh, SBACs as a, as a measure of a young person's, you know, success, what types of data or inf- information do you feel are, are important for us to be paying attention to, to know whether, you know, learning and, and educational experiences and outcomes are improving?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, in, in some ways, I think having some kind of standard measure is, is useful in the sense that um, it's just one, one data point, right? Mm-hmm. And think that it, it serves purpose in some ways. Um, and I like the direction that Vermont has been going in the last few years um, with their report card. And so they have several different measures. I mean, they Vermont and the Agency of Education are working towards expanding, you know, what the community can see the school is scoring high in and what you know is lacking. And one of them is school climate or school culture, and typically that that is determined um, by surveying everybody involved, right? families, uh, kids, students, um, faculty, and administration. And in that way, you get sort of a a better 360 picture of the school climate. And I think that that is probably a metric that is missing. And we still don't really have it worked out in Vermont. um, But I'm hopeful about that. And I think most educators that have been around for a while will tell you that again like the relationships that that's actually the the foundation right um is making sure that that school uh, climate is positive and supportive and effective um, for all of the students that are there and when you have that when you can hit on that and build it i'm not going to say always but It's very typical for the rest of those metrics to follow. Uh, I think that at the federal level, there's more interest in school climate um, and being able to measure that and utilize it as a real uh, measuring stick. But I don't think that universally we sort of have that figured out or how to do that. And I'll just throw in one other thing. Um, we had a keynote speaker for our uh, conference, our academy this summer, Dr. Lavelle Brown, who is, uh, was superintendent of the year in New York State and is still superintendent in the Ithaca area. And he has students write his evaluation. Mm-hmm. Um, he, they determine the metrics for him and they, deter- and they write up his evaluation. And I always am reminded that when we think about how to measure things or how, you know, how are we going to do things, we should ask kids. Um, we should ask students, because they probably know.
0: So beyond the school system, what do you feel is needed to address uh, you know, inequity in, in, the, in the larger community and, and, and in our state of Vermont? I appreciate
1: that, because I think a lot is sort of laid at the feet of schools. Um, because there is potential in school. And I think there's also this notion that, you know, public school is a, is a, helps a society be a meritocracy, that people can earn their way forward. And we know that that is really not true. There, it doesn't mean that there aren't elements of that. You know, there are elements of it. And they certainly, we can highlight stories of people, you know, coming out of situations that it's unbelievable that they come out of. Um, but overall, you know, I think that sort of leaving all of society's ills at, at the feet of school is a notion that I I hope we're growing out of. And, you know, as an example of that, when somebody would tell me like, "Oh, there's a drug problem at the high school," I was like, "What?" <laughs> like that just appears out of nowhere. Um, that that's not connected to. You know, our society and our community and our culture um, and everything else that we're doing um, just isn't realistic and, and not true. So, you know, I think thinking about overall health and well-being, thinking about food systems, particularly in Vermont, I think that we have a real, real potential to do lots of things with food systems. You know, as we already have a pretty agricultural-centered um, state. And we also have a pretty good uh, local food desire from, this, from, from most people. And, you know, we have examples of school systems that have huge gardens um, and uh, have, you know, farm to table kind of curriculum and uh, lunches. And so I think there's a lot of potential there, um, thinking about our local economics, thinking about our local identity, thinking about a building community. Uh, so I, I'd like to see us do more with food and uh, he- overall health and well-being. You know, you think about uh, a place like Iceland. I don't know how familiar you are with their story or not. But Iceland had all of this terrible data 20 years ago, you know, high rates of teen depression, suicide, alcohol abuse, uh, drug use. They made a decision as a nation, it's a small place. um, So, you know, obviously it's not apples to apples, but um, they made a decision to really invest in after school programs, before school programs. Um, athletics uh, or wellness, moving the body and really, really invested heavily in parenting programs and uh, everything to sort of put young families sort of at the center of their communities, um, both locally and nationwide. And their data is absolutely off the charts uh, better um, in, in just 20 years. And they have you know, what they feel like is a roadmap um, for, for other places. And I'm not saying that, you know, Vermont is Iceland or, or we can do exactly that. But I do think it gives us an indication of what's possible if, if we um, think about it in a mind frame of, of, investment in young people, in, in young families, in, in community, community centers and health and well-being. And guess what? Their economy is good too. Um, the, you know, that's that, that's uh, one of the, the outputs um, from that investment input. So yeah, I, I, I really think that um, you know, seeing the schools as separate from community is a mistake and just knowing that they're intertwined. And I'm sort of expecting and hoping that we will see that ethos and that mindset emerge in the next year or two in Vermont um, as people start to talk more and more about community schools.
0: You know, it's hard to hard to ask another question after that. Uh, <laughs> that feels like a, a really great way to uh, wrap up the conversation. Is there anything else you want to add, or any you know thing I didn't ask that? No,
1: I, I, I appreciate the chance to to share and, and to to do this with, with you and um appreciate all the work that you're doing. And uh you know there's there's plenty more in front of us. Um and, and thanks for the chance to to talk a little bit about what's going on lately.
0: Yeah, you got it, Mike. It's great great talking with you. Hope uh we get to get on a, another Zoom room together sometime soon. I hope so too. All right, take care, Mike. In the second part of this episode, Emily Baker, a senior at Randolph Union High School, sat down with one of her classmates, Grace Brock, and reflected on her learning experience under COVID. The biggest takeaway from their conversation for me is how much she affirms the importance of personalized learning.
2: Hi, my name is Grace Brock, and I am a senior, well, going to be a senior at the Randolph Technical Career Center. And
3: Randolph. Alrighty, righty. So I'm going to ask you some pre-COVID questions, like what your school was like with its inequity and all that stuff that we're going to be touching on in this pre-COVID. Okay. So what inequity have did you see in your school before COVID across race and or income?
2: I think that our school, it's not... I think the school system has a pretty good system in place to support students that were that, you know, come from low income families, because we have a lunch program that provides breakfast and lunch free to certain students um, if they apply for it. And I also feel like that it's gotten better in supporting students from low income families, because especially with... um, having to go home to houses I don't have Wi-Fi and a lot of the things that we do in school are a majority of it is online so that's a really big part of our education now so trying to support those students that don't have Wi-Fi or don't have that much access to Wi-Fi um, has gotten better I think from where we were before.
3: What was your experience like at your high school? In general, goods, bads, anything I'd in between. Say, I'd say it was
2: fairly. It was fairly good. There were some little things here or there. Um, not little things, obviously, but just. I personally didn't go through any bullying, but we have had a couple scares at our school with um, someone making a list of people that they'd like to kill, <laughs> and a couple. Bomb threats that were not credible at all, but we still had to go out of school for like two days because of that. but I'd say overall, I had a pretty normal and pretty okay high school and middle school
3: life. What about the students and peers around you what What do you feel their experience was like, or how did you see a better question? How did you see that students and peers? like interact.
2: I feel like a lot of students at our school really don't like our school and they really just they they had a lot of hatred. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure why, but I feel like they they just didn't feel very much school spirit, which I know sounds really cliche, but like they just they didn't respect our school very like much.
3: The authority at your school.
2: The authority but also the they thought, you know, they thought, oh, this school sucks. Or, like, I'm constantly hearing, I I constantly heard people calling our school bad and saying, oh, there's so much bad stuff happening here. But I, in my personal opinion, there is, there is a lot that we need to, you know, as a school that needs to be done in order to make it more inclusive. But I think that there are a lot of redeeming qualities like uh, the dress code, you know, though... Dress codes are have a history of being more leaning towards um penalizing girls rather than boys but in our school it's pretty the dress code is really loose and allows you to be pretty forgiving with both boys and girls to a certain extent so that it's not very rigid but it is very but it is respectful of both women and well girls and boys yeah
3: so overall pre-COVID, you had a pretty decent slash good experience with your high
2: school? Yeah, decent, normal, that kind of thing.
3: Did that change with your remote learning experience?
2: I don't think it changed, but because last year I went to Randolph Technical Career Center, and before that I went to the Randolph Union High School, so that change was definitely very different um, in a positive way, but also going into having it kind of cut off by COVID kind of made it a little worse, just, you know, because I feel like because we weren't in the classroom and because we weren't able to have as many opportunities to learn hands-on because that's what a technical career center is all about is hands-on learning. um, I feel like I missed out on learning some key skills that I could have learned in that first year, but I'm still excited to keep on going, yeah.
3: We're going to get into the school closure remote learning questions. What was your experience like with remote learning? What worked well for you and what did not work well?
2: I find that being able to contact my teachers consistently helped me a lot. Going out of regular school and onto online learning was very hard to adjust to just because um, having a set schedule where I had to get up, I had to pack my bag. Get my lunch, go to school, and be physically away from my home space was really helpful for me as a person just because it was a good separation of school and home. But um, having to try to figure out a way to get that separation into my own house was really difficult Um, just because it was hard to get myself up and ready if. You know, there wasn't that drive to, oh, I have to get to school, or I'm going to be late, or it's just that, it's just that feeling of separation. I think that was really hard.
3: In your district, have you seen this play out differently for students across race, if yes, how? The experience with remote learning.
2: I'm not really sure uh, if I can, I haven't really noticed any differences personally. I'm sure that if other people, you know, a person of another race could probably go more in depth Mm -hmm. about that particular topic because I have no idea what that would be like Mm -hmm. for someone of a different race. And I have no idea what discrepancies, like what between what what I would be going through, my struggles, and what someone else would be going through. So I don't know how to really comment on that.
3: In your district, have you seen this play out differently across household income?
2: I've heard from some of my other peers about how it it was kind of hard in the beginning because they didn't have access to wi-fi or their access was very limited and um, it was very hard to contact teachers and stay in touch but aside from that I think the biggest complaint I heard was that it was mostly from teachers that they weren't you know from students that did it that did have access to all those things that they weren't checking in, or they weren't coming to the classes that were scheduled, and they didn't get the amount of participation you'd get in a normal classroom setting.
3: Did you have the resources you need at home, such as a learning space, supplies, or a teacher or mentor's help for you to fully participate in the remote learning process?
2: Yes, I am very lucky to be able to have, I am able to have access to all of the tools needed in order to be successful in remote learning. Mm. Though I know a lot of kids my age probably don't have as much as I do, and I'm really thankful for the fact that I do. Uh,
3: what did your school provide for you?
2: Uh, well, they offered Chromebooks for kids to take home if they didn't have a computer at home or if they did, but just not a personal computer or just something that was specifically mm-hmm. theirs for their schoolwork and all that kind of stuff. Well, also they provided food. Uh, for a lot of kids because a lot of kids in the tech center and also from the high school um are a part of the program that I mentioned before that offers free lunches to kids in ling- low-income housing so yeah
3: what was it like for your family during the shelter-in-place order
2: for me specifically it was very stressful like a lot of other families, but especially so because my dad was in the hospital um, getting a bone marrow transplant because he had he had cancer, um, and it was just especially frustrating because we couldn't physically be in his room for this uh, kind of tr- uh, treatment or, like, surgery type thing. So, yeah, it was just, it was very stressful, but now that it's, he's come home and He's feeling much better, and we're just at a much better and more calm place. I've been feeling much better, yeah.
3: How did you receive feedback on your schoolwork?
2: A majority of my of uh, the feedback that I got came from either comments on the physical, physical document, or I would contact my teachers and set up a time to meet, and we'd go over whatever assignment that I was um, working on, and we'd kind of go over what needed to be revised what sounded good if I needed to add anything more and so on and so forth
3: did your family have a hard time managing the new situation such as new school schedules or difficulty finding child care school supplies food supplies meal preparation etc
2: our well my family specifically I don't think we had much trouble um just because as I mentioned before with my dad having cancer we have to be before COVID hit, we still, we had to be very careful. We had to wear masks around my dad a lot of the time. Um, And we had to, you know, it was kind of like we were living a quarantine life already before we actually had, it was a mandate to be in quarantine. So it wasn't that big of a switch um, to having to stay at home, but it was still just very uh, kind of jarring to be throughout being able to go out in public, you know, just on a whim that to be having to go out with a mask and make sure to be out in a certain amount of time. And yeah.
3: What new behaviors did you see in yourself or, or other students during the remote learning that you haven't seen before?
2: Oh, gosh. Uh, worse procrastination. <laughs> um, very, 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 very bad procrastination. I saw that with myself and also my friends. Um, it was just it was because I feel like in the home environment it's again with that separation that I was talking about I felt like it was okay for me to chill and you know not do my work because mm-hmm. I was at home and there wasn't that oh I need to be doing schoolwork at blah, blah 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 so yeah.
3: In remote learning did you feel like you learned more about the same or less than you would have when you were in school?
2: I'd have to say less just because, um, especially going to a tech center, it is really important to get that hands-on aspect of the program that you're into, um, especially because the tech center is very specifically driven on the skills that you learn in class. Um, So I feel like I, as I said before, I missed out a lot on possibly a lot of um, opportunities and. Skills that I could have learned.
3: Um, if you feel you learned less, how concerned are you about your learning now moving forward?
2: I'm I'm fairly concerned, but I am uh, very hopeful that the hybrid that the hybrid schedule will work, and that mm-hmm. will we will be able to still learn all of the skills that we may have missed, and that we sh- are expected to learn in this coming year. We'll be able to be you know learned in that hybrid model um that's just our specific school but there's still I still have a little bit of doubt with the online learning for my core classes you know like math and English and all that kind of stuff but um I'm I'm hopeful Mm -hmm. (laughs) to say the least
3: in returning to school what would help you have a smooth transition
2: when returning to school probably well help me personally I'm assuming is the question yeah Well, I think that, you know, we have to follow the guidelines very strictly Mm -hmm. because there have been a couple examples like in the recent months or weeks that schools have been open with um, in Georgia where they had to shut down three schools and quarantine for two weeks because they weren't following the guidelines. They were not being safe. And I think that that's a good example to how we should not be running Mm -hmm. our schools like we need to follow the guidelines and be safe rather than take the chance on oh it'll be fine
3: (laughs) when back in school what would help your success what do you need
2: I think um I think that the teachers have been doing a really good job with this I think just to keep on going with being really really flexible with Mm -hmm. everyone because every our, the entire world is in a state of confusion, unknown, what will happen next, how are we going to deal with daily life from here on out, you know? So I think just the flexibility need, is essential for everybody at this point, you know? It's not just me or the teachers, it's the staff or, you know, it's it's everyone, yeah.
3: What do you want lawmakers and other decision makers to know about your experience? <laughs> Okay. Um. Directly to the lawmakers. <laughs> Directly Let's hear to this. The
2: lawmakers. Okay. Let's hear this, Grace. I think that the lack of empathy that lawmakers had toward in the beginning of this um pandemic is frustrating, and it's absurd that they put the economy over people's lives, especially, Mm -hmm. like, the lives of my dad and other immunocompromised people and and children and elderly people, you know, you're, as a lawmaker and as someone who is to uphold the, you know, the rights and the decisions that you were voted in for, it is their duty and their job to make sure that those people that voted them in are safe Mm -hmm. and that they... Are alive, mm-hmm. you know, to vote them again later. Yeah, exactly. It's it's just six a hundred, a hundred and six, one hundred sixty thousand deaths should not be the time. You know, like we should have had this handled at a couple of deaths, but that a couple of deaths is too
3: Still
2: many. Tragic, yeah, yeah, you know, like we shouldn't have to wait until one hundred and sixty thousand deaths to get order... our butts in gear. Yeah.
3: Very true. Did you have more or new chores or responsibilities during the remote learning, such as babysitting, household tasks, etc.?
2: Uh, no, more of helping, uh, well, it wasn't more of like a, I guess because I was here, I would help out more, yeah. just, you know, as a natural, you know, you're here, you're going to do this <laughs> kind of thing. Um, But I wouldn't say that I'd have more, you know, because it's just us yeah. three in the house.
3: Uh, did you take on a job outside the home? How did this affect your education?
2: Um, I'm not allowed to have a job currently because of my dad's um immunocomposition. Um, but I do plan on hopefully once my dad gets a bit better, um, in on getting a job, uh, just so I can help get some money for college and other things.
3: Uh what do you think can be done to improve remote learning in the future in case schools must close down again?
2: I personally think that there needs to be a different type of application or or another, you know, on top of Google Meets and other things, something that is easier to uh talk to students with, that's more accessible. You know, just like a something, uh, a program or something like that, because a lot of kids just, you know, it's not as engaging or it's not Mm -hmm. as, you know, like it's not as a big, it's not a big of a deal with Google for some reason. Or it's just, you know, I don't know exactly, (laughs) Um, but just having a more communicative communicative way to Mm. talk to teachers Mm. and being more in person kind of thing.
3: Mm -hmm. what type of data and information would you be paying attention most to when as we transition back to uh, reopening in order to feel like your needs and other students needs are being met for example grades or overall mental health of students
2: I think specifically right now (laughs) grades should not be as you know considered as I don't know, as, like, they shouldn't be judged as harshly Mm -hmm. with this specifically, because I have, uh, because this is a very traumatic time for everyone, you know, like, Mm -hmm. we're going through a pandemic, there is a lot of political unrest, and there's just so much going on in our national, you know, as a country that, and then top it off on being a teenager and mm-hmm. going through so many other struggles other than just our our country being at war with itself there's just I think that our grades should not be judged as harshly mm-hmm. as they were in the past.
3: We often hear about students in schools in school or graduating who have not learned to read or or write well. In your experience, what do you think's going on?
2: I think that in a classroom setting it is often more about the entire class rather than specific indi- individual students' learning uh, as a whole because, you know, some might... The teachers might focus on those who excel and then reprimand those that are not, you know, working as well with that particular learning style rather than conforming to what the student needs rather... You know, it's... Mm-hmm. I think that that could be a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um Also, uh, a lot of students are different types of learners. Maybe they're just not the type of learner that reading and writing is their strong suit. And maybe math is something that they can excel at or doing something hands-on, like in the technical career program where you need to just remember certain measurements or, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that it should be about figuring out what each student needs and what their learning style is, mm-hmm. and then trying to work that into the collective as a classroom.
3: How has remote learning affected students who struggle with reading and writing on grade level? On grade level? So, like, personally, I am a year to two years behind in math. Mm-hmm. So, like, how would that, How is that? How is that struggle affected people who are, two, three years behind on reading or two, three years behind on writing.
2: I think that not having, you know, the teacher there might be pretty detrimental to learning how to... Because I think that person-to-person contact is really important when learning to read or write because it helps develop that, you know, say, for instance, there's a student that's trying to learn how to make a certain sound and then she she hears this teacher say that sound and they try to emulate that, you know? It's mm-hmm. like the... I think it's just the students, the one-on-one type of deal mm-hmm. that might be putting them behind a mm-hmm. little bit more.
3: How do you feel remote learning can be improved for these students who struggle or students overall? Mm-hmm.
2: I think that because, you know, just from what I experienced, me personally, um, just, I don't know, It's it's really hard because we've never really experienced something like this in our lifetime, at least as students. So it's really hard to try to find, but uh, try to think of a way to make it better when we don't really know what mm-hmm. possibilities are out there. But I think that just being more open to different ways of doing things, you know, like, say there's an assignment where you have to make a uh presentation about a book or something mm-hmm. make it more interactive for the students, like you can draw and you can do all that type of stuff mm-hmm. and you can make a video and send it in rather than just making a boring presentation that you click a slide and say blah 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 blah, click a slide, you know, just mm-hmm. make it more
3: interactive,
2: yeah, to more hands on I guess
3: <laughs> How do people learn to read? How do people learn to write?
2: I think reading is. A lot about association uh like with this certain um amount like this certain like these letters together make this sound Mm -hmm. or these letters sound like this individually but once they're put together they make a different sound Mm -hmm. you know i think it's more about the association when learning to read but when learning to write it's more about the physical the muscle memory Mm -hmm. you know where um, since you know what sounds go together and how a word is spelled, you can just use muscle memory and that kind of helps learning reading and writing, I guess, yeah.
3: How was reading taught in your school? What works well? What does not work well?
2: Oh, gosh. I It's really hard to remember that far back. Uh, I think reading was taught a lot of the time with very simple phrases and very, very, very simple kindergarten level, level books, Mm -hmm. and we'd often have, like, word association games where, like, a certain word may sound like this one but not mean the same Mm -hmm. thing. Do you remember, I think, yeah, I think that's kind of, I, you know, it's been a long time since I was five years old, so I can't really remember exactly how our school taught reading and writing.
3: Do you think the SBAC exam is a good way to access children's abilities to read and write. No.
2: <laughs> we took that in elementary school, right? I think.
3: What was your experience like taking the SBAC exam?
2: It was very hard and very, you know, I don't think that elementary school age students are, you know, capable of one, being under pressure of that big of a test. Mm-hmm and be able to think clearly and do that in a way that shows what they actually learned Mm -hmm. and also it's just not the questions were very confusing and I think they were meant for to analyze a grade that wasn't that good. yeah Mm -hmm. you know I think it was meant for older kids but they wanted to see how younger kids would do in that test but it just it didn't make sense at the
3: time Do you have any ideas about what might be a good way to test students' ability to read and write?
2: I think reading comprehension is pretty, uh, like, that's a, I think, personally, for me, that really helped, Um, like, reading a a sentence and then trying to say what that Mm -hmm. sentence means in your own words. That really helps, I think, personally, just because uh, it really has you think about, oh, this word means that, but then this word means this together, and one is together. Yeah, I think that reading comprehension is is a really good way to show how you like how much you've learned mm-hmm. and how much you know how to read.
3: Yeah. What happens to students when they fall behind in learning to read? What happens when they enter middle and high
1: school?
2: I feel like reading and writing are pretty essential in every uh, you know, in every subject, because depending on what your, uh, even in, like, science and math, though they're not necessarily reading and writing classes, or, like, very important. yeah, it's very important, mm-hmm. because if you're writing a, a lab, you have to know exactly, you know, what how words to, spell. to use, yeah, and how to spell yeah. something right, and how to spell something correctly, or in math, when you're doing a word problem, you need to know, what the context is so you're able to solve the problem correctly rather than just taking all the numbers and figuring it out from there. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it, it would be really really hard if you were behind in those areas and mm. you know trying to go in the middle and high school.
3: If you could have a magic wand what would teaching and learning of literacy look like in schools?
2: If I had you know a magic wand and was able to change the way we taught reading and writing in um, in schools, I think it would be more geared towards individual needs. Mm-hmm. Um, just because, you know, everyone learns at certain speeds, and I think that that should be celebrated rather than saying, oh, this person, this kid is doing so much better than you, and you need to try to get up to this level. Mm-hmm. You do need to be at a certain level at a certain age, but may- trying not to put it as a competition rather than everyone's. Learning Mm
3: -hmm. at their own pace. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of... What are the barriers (laughs) to making this a reality?
2: I think that it's, again, with that whole class as a collective and also money. Yeah, (laughs) money and also... um, They can't really take the time out of the day to specifically Mm -hmm. go up to each child and be like, hey, we're going to assess how you read and, you know, like, go off.
3: like, testing each kid is very time-consuming. It's very
2: time-consuming. But I think in the long run, if they did put out, you know, specifically put time in, I think if there was a study done, they could see pretty good, you know, like, Mm -hmm. growth in those
3: students. What can teachers, school board members, educational leaders, colleges of education, parents, and legislators do to move in this direction?
2: I would rather allocate unnecessary funds that are used to, you know, that that could be used elsewhere to provide better services in literacy. Like,
3: like... Transfer funding to more funding to the education system. Yes. Okay. Yeah.
2: Saying reallocating funds from you know the the places that they are being put, uh, mm-hmm. and um putting it more towards education in general because school the school system re I think needs to be reevaluated as a whole because yeah. it doesn't work for everyone. Mm-hmm. That's evident with like me going to the tech center. That is a very, it's a very good program, but I don't think I would have, if the tech center wasn't an option, I don't think I would be doing as well in school as Mm -hmm. I had been. True. Yeah.
3: What do you think students should do if they're struggling to learn to read? What do you recommend they do?
2: I, for, for students who are struggling to read, it is kind of hard for me to try to put myself in their shoes, but I I don't really want to speak, you know, because I don't really know how, you know, certain levels... Go, on. Mm-hmm. um but my my personal advice would be to just keep trying and keep just reminding yourself that it's okay how you know however slow or however fast paced I want to go you know my learning mm-hmm. is it's still okay and I'm st- I'm going to get there eventually mm-hmm. and if I just keep going and keep working that's just my personal thing
3: what else would you like for monsters to know about literacy and education in our state
2: I think that it's come a long way from where it has been in the past, but I think that there is still a long way to go in um, reforming and deconstructing a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the past systems that were put in place in the education system overall that don't that don't really benefit students, mm-hmm. um, especially with like student voice. That's also a big Part of why people in our school don't feel, you know, like, uh, don't like our school as much because there isn't a lot of opportunity for student voice, and I think mm-hmm. that that could be something that could be improved upon
3: in mm-hmm. the future. Okay. This spring, Governor Phil Scott has said, <laughs> and I quote, I believe it is possible for Vermont to emerge from this crisis on a path towards having the very best education system in the country and ultimately the world. Mm. Given your concerns what would the very best education system look like to you?
2: I, just to reiterate, you know, the the individualism, you know, like rather than mm-hmm. having the class referring to it as a mm-hmm. whole, I think we've done, we've gotten better at it. But, you know, there's, I think there's that. And also just to touch on, you know, the history, history in <laughs> history specifically, uh, I feel like we gloss over a lot of the, really important topics that we need to talk about as you know as a country especially with what's going on Mm
3: -hmm. um bring that more into school yeah
2: bring that bring that so it's not a movement per se but it's more of our history in education in our in education because this is important that we learn what we you know what as a country our mistakes have been and how we can grow from those Mm -hmm. in the future
3: do you think we're gonna do you think Vermont's gonna be the very best education system in that uh, what did he say?
2: In the country, in the and, country and the
3: world. In the country and the world, do you? <laughs> um
2: I think that that is a bit of a stretch. Uh-huh, yeah. Just a bit. <laughs> um, I think that if we make the necessary, you know, like it's gonna
3: take a while. Yeah,
2: it's going to take a very long time. Yeah. But I think that if we do go in the right direction of making sure that all students are, you know, their learning is.
3: Prioritized.
2: Prioritized, but also at the same time, it's like you, we acknowledge the whole, but we do make sure that everyone's needs are met, you know? So it's not just. Look at
3: these grades. Oh my God, we're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: You know, like, and I think that we're on a good way of going there, but there's still a lot that needs revised.
3: (laughs) Uh, Last two questions. Mm -hmm who else should we be speaking with
2: i think younger kids like i want to i would kind of really want to see how they mm-hmm. view the school system you know yep. cuz <laughs> uh, i think cuz especially little kids they yep. are very very honest in whatever in, in whatever yep. they think mm-hmm. so i think that it would be really interesting to see how from that young of an age how they see how what they're learning is like
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um. So yeah, that's just me personally. Uh,
3: final question: Is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, are there any questions that we haven't asked you that you think we should be asking? Anything overall?
2: I don't think so. I kind of went on for
3: <laughs> a long time. Fabulous.
0: You've been listening to Back to Freedom School, ongoing discussions about some of the challenges facing Vermont's education system and some of the opportunities to achieve equity in Vermont's education system. I'm your host, Infinite. Thanks again for listening.